<laughs> is anybody else still sweaty from the music? Yeah? There is a, a small group of people in here who can relate to me. Um, you are the rhythmically impaired. Raise your hand. I mean, you cannot clap and sing at the same time. And that was painful for you, what you went through. I just want to let you know, I understand you. Last night, Jeff was making so much fun of me because I cannot, I have to choose one. I can't do both. And then when you had to get the shoulders into it, and I just for years in the church, I have to either clap or sing. And a lot of times I'll watch other people and, and then to move and not do all the hop hop. And I mean, it was, it was a mess. So last night was painful, embarrassing. I'm not even sure the Lord was pleased with me uh, last night. And so today, both times, I've stood in the back and just enjoyed it and uh, got to worship and sang the words and the whole bit and not have to be... So a lot of you can't relate, but again, let me see who can. Yes, we have a club that few people understand are handicapped. Um, I have worked with teenagers for the majority of my life, and about 20 years ago, I discovered um, that... If I asked a certain question to a teenager, I could get them to talk like never before. Because most of the time, you talk to a teenager, you know, I, I, you know, you just don't get much. So I came up with this game. It's called Would You Rather. And actually, over the years, I've collected hundreds of Would You Rather questions. Actually, you even put them in a couple books. And the idea is this. You present a Would You Rather that allows them to make a choice... And then once they make a choice on what they would rather do, then if I want to, I can say, well, how'd you come up to that decision? And I can peel back some of their decision-making, and I can actually even see a window or a snapshot into their values or what they see as important in in life. And so I want to play with you, uh, and this isn't going to teach me anything about your heart and your soul in this first one, but uh, it goes like this. Would you rather eat Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A? So Taco Bell, you'd rather eat Taco Bell? Let me see. Okay, Chick-fil-A? Yeah, dominates. Okay, yeah. Now, who said neither? Okay, now, here's the deal. That's not the game. It's would you rather, not would you neither. And it's always guys like you that sit up close that do that, okay? It's would, so now I've got my eye on you. You've got to play. You've got to choose. It's not like you have to. You have to walk out here and go, oh, I've got to go eat one. No, it's just a game, all right? So uh, let's, let's try it again. Would you rather be rich or would you rather be famous with no riches, okay? Rich. Who says rich? Okay. Who says famous? Okay, just, you know, a, a couple. I mean, kids answer that one a little different because they're still idealistic. And you know, <laughs> we live in Orange County. Go, oh, you know, car, house payment, oh, give me rich any day, okay? okay? All right, how about this one? Would you rather lead or follow? Who'd rather lead? Okay, who'd rather follow? All right. Um, how about this one, last one? Would you rather make a baby cry or kick a puppy? All right? You don't have to do it. Make a baby cry. Puppy kickers. All right. See, the fun of this is is like that one. I mean, that kind of splits you half and half. That's the fun of coming up with a question that kind of divides the, the group. And actually, over the years, I found the girls are better at this. Girls actually ask good questions that move into some dialogue. 
boys, they're terrible at it. They do things like, would you rather eat ice cream cone or burn to death in a fire? You know, it's that type of, type of thing. Girls design questions to converse. Boys design questions to win, which is why males have a zero chance of ever understanding women. But this idea of would you rather, this is not new. I didn't come up with it. As a matter of fact, it's been around since the beginning of humanity. It's a question that God presents to us. Would you rather live your way by your plans and your desires and your agenda, or would you rather live my way, by my plans and my dreams and my desires? And because, I'm sure God has a preferred answer, but because he's gracious and his love is unbelievable, he gives us the freedom to choose. That we are all here, that we are not puppets on a string where God has moving us into those directions. We have a choice of which way we get to to go. And this week, as we continue in this series that we're calling Christian, we're trying to bring clarity to what does it mean to be a Christian, bring clarity to the actual term. Because a lot of us in here, I would say maybe the majority of us in here, have kind of grown up with this idea that if I just believe a couple things, if I just agree to some intellectual propositions about Christianity or Jesus, then I am a Christian. The problem with this superficial understanding of what it means to be a Christian is it's led to superficial Christianity. It's led to a superficial faith. It's led to some, some people that don't look like Jesus or resemble his teaching in any way, but they are Christian. We've, we've dumbed down and defeated and deafened that word. It's kind of like the word love. Love, you could say love with any number of things. I love my wife and my kids. I love my family. I love donuts. I love Twinkies. I love Costco free samples. I love the movies. I love the Lakers. I love KFWB News 98. You give us 22 minutes, we give you the world. I love Duck Dynasty. I love uh, hot dogs. I love people falling off their bikes. I love my friends. I love to read. I love Chick-fil-A, except on Sundays. I, uh, I love Jesus. Okay, there's a lot of things that I love. But love is a neutered word until there is action put behind it. So until you watch and investigate my life, you would go, oh, if you follow me around, you go, oh, okay. He really loves his family a lot more than he loves donuts. But I can say a lot of things about love, and it has no meaning until there's action. Now, the same is true with the word Christian. It's weakened. It's beaten down. It's marginalized, it's, it's made fun of, it's politicized, and it only gets its real definition when there's action behind it. The word Christian only appears three times in the Bible, and it's not even defined. The people who were first century followers of Jesus, they didn't call themselves Christians, they called themselves what? Who knows? Okay, disciples, yeah, disciples. And disciple is a terrifying term because disciple is 
so clearly defined in Scripture. But Christian, you can be a Christian and believe anything. You can be a Christian and adopt any type of lifestyle you want. You go, oh, I'm a Christian. And live a life that supports your, your lifestyle or your whatever you think a Christian is. See, the difference between Christian and disciple is simply this. Christian tends to be about one, what one believes. Disciple is all about what a person actually does. Or another way to say it that I put in your notes, it might be a good time to grab them, is a Christian can often become an act. You act it out, you go through the motions, it's passionless, you come, you remote, you're robot, you sing, you raise your hand, you pray, you give. You go, it just becomes a, a persona. It's often an act where a disciple is always an action. And really what we've got is we've got a lot of people who are acting like, like Christians or assuming they're Christians simply because they're not Muslim or Buddhist or atheist or some other ist or they think they're a Christian. You've heard this before. I'm a Christian because I was born in the United States. Okay? I mean, there are people who say that, oh, no, I'm a Christian. I was born here. Okay? You, you track that logic. It'd be like if you were, if you were born in Starbucks, would you be a Frappuccino? I mean, what, you know, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm glad you're laughing a little bit because many of you, you're not going to be very happy with me. I'm just going to warn you, for some of you, you're going to leave ticked because I'm going to push your buttons. I'm going to rattle your cage. I'm going to push your definition. I'm going to challenge for what many of you have kind of thought and lived out and was a Christian. But all I want to do is point to what the scriptures say is, is a disciple. See, for those of you who are kind of investigating, you're coming with friends, you're curious, you're wondering, you're not necessarily into Christianity or Jesus or church, but you're either you know, curious or forced to be here, you're probably going to like it. Because you're going to go, yeah. See, that's what I've been saying. A lot of Christians don't look like Jesus. I, I told you, Mom, that's why I don't listen to you. All you Christians, you don't, you don't look like Jesus. That's why I walked away from the faith, or I still go, but I've just kind of, I go through the motions. You see, in week one of this series, what Jeff did is he painted this beautiful picture of a disciple, and then he connected disciple with the word apprentice. And an apprentice is somebody who commits their life to learn from the master. So if there is an, a, a master who whatever skill or craft or whatever it is, he or she would then have apprentices who would learn. And you would actually be an apprentice for as long as it took until your work became indistinguishable from that of the master. So what Jeff was saying is a disciple is really an apprentice to the master Jesus. And you learn and follow the master Jesus until your life actually becomes indistinguishable from that of Jesus. That was week one. Week two, Jeff taught us about the early church adopting the title, The Followers of the Way. The implication being this, that they were, they were following a way. They were following Jesus' way. They were following a different way that was from the world. But they were actually a followers of of a way, and it was a different way. And this different way actually is beautifully communicated in the Sermon on the Mount. 
the most famous sermon. If you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, read it over. You could read that for the rest of your life and try to figure it out. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount. There's some younger folks in here. And when the first time I ever heard I was in church, I thought, it was, I thought Jesus was into baseball because I thought it was a Sermon on the Mound. Have you ever had one of those where you hear it and it sticks with you forever? That was it. Sermon on, yesterday I was in uh, Del Taco and I heard a Bee Gees song. Um, you know that one? For years I thought it was bald-headed woman. And it's more than a woman. Okay, Listen to it. It sounds like bald-headed woman. I can remember skating, backwards skate in the 70s, you know, to, all that, all that. Yeah, I, thought, I really did, thought it was a bald-headed woman. Anyway, it has nothing to do with today. Uh, but Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount, is teaching the followers of the way, these, these disciples, about how the way is different. And notice the picture that he paints how disciples are to be different. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it, the light, on the stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as Jesus is teaching the disciples to be different, he takes two very common items that everyone would know, salt and light, and says you're actually supposed to be salt and light. Now, why salt and light? Why Salt, because during biblical times, there was no refrigeration available. So salt was used as a preservative to counteract decay. So instead of putting meat into a refrigerator, they didn't have the capability to do that, they would put salt on that. And salt would counteract the meat from decaying. Now, the interesting thing about salt is salt is rarely seen, but it is always sensed. You can taste salt. Just a little bit of say, oh, that that's, has salt. That's salty. And even me saying salty. Some of you, you love salt. Who loves salt? Okay? Yeah. And you're actually wanting to leave to go eat something salty right now. I love salt. I salt everything. I salt salty food. Okay? I salt bacon. Okay? I'm the guy who salts my salt. Okay? Uh, I like it that much. And Jesus is saying this. You are the salt in the world around you, meaning that people should sense God because of you, disciple. They may not see God, but they should sense Him because of you. You're the salt. You're to be the salt to, to counteract decay. Then He gives another one. You should be the light. You're the light of the world. Where salt might be this powerful, invisible influence, light is a very visible influence. And what does light do? It penetrates darkness. If this room was completely dark, all we would need is for a door just to be opened up just a little bit. All we would need is for me to just turn my phone on a little bit and I'd be able to see the direction. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is, in a world of decay... Don't stay in the salt shaker. 
In a world of decay, disciple, you're supposed to be out there to counteract the decay. In a world of darkness, disciple, you're supposed to be the light in the midst of the darkness, and it all brings glory back to God the Father. So as I put in your notes, salt is sensed and light is seen. That's the goal of a disciple, to bring that into the world the decaying and dark world. Now you're going, Doug, what do you mean decaying and dark world? How about this week? This week was a perfect illustration of a decaying and dark world. What took place in Boston that originated in the hearts of two young men is an illustration of dark and decaying. Evil was on display. And all of us are capable of different situations where evil is on display out of our life. And Jesus is saying, in the midst of this world that we live in, that is dark and decaying, disciple, be salt and be light. See, what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he is taking this brushstroke and he's painting this picture of depth. He's moving us to a deep place. Christian title, superficial, up here. I'm a Christian because I I buy into it. I believe a few things. I'm going to call that just high and superficial. Jesus is going, I want to show you what a disciple is. I want to take you to deeper places, all right? Now, he doesn't just do it with the salt and light. He then introduces us to these four words, but I tell you. You're going to see in a second they're radical words, but I tell you. Say it with me, but I tell you. Several times, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. Let's start with the first one, Matthew 5, 21. He starts with his cultural understanding of murder. So he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay. <laughs> Nobody in here is going to disagree with that even thousands of years later. Murder, don't murder was what governed people all the way back to the time of Moses. We know killing people, bad, okay? It doesn't look good on your resume. Employers don't like it, okay? Don't do it. But here comes Jesus' powerful four words in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is, what? Angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. So all of a sudden, Jesus takes this old rule that everyone was governed by, and he turns it around with anger. He says, but I tell you, let me go to a deeper place. I want to cast the net wider because I want to penetrate into your heart where you really live. Because you know what some of you are doing? You're walking around going, look at me. I don't murder. I'm big shot. I don't murder. I'm a good Christian. I don't murder. It's not, you're not going to see me murder on the 5 o'clock news. But I tell you, anyone who is angry. See, he go, you know, a lot of us in here, we're not killing people physically. We're just killing people emotionally, spiritually, relationally. There's a lot of quiet killers in here. We walk around with our Christian faith. How are you doing? Good, brother. Good to see you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Here's my Bible. Got got even a holder for my Bible. Okay? I got a backup Bible in my car. Okay, I mean, I got Bibles. I mean, I, I, but we're destroying people with our anger. And Jesus says, I want to get to the deeper place where you, where you really, really live. 
Now, I'm not saying, please hear this. I'm not saying a disciple doesn't have anger issues. A disciple just doesn't pretend he or she doesn't. Okay? And a disciple then goes to the master as an apprentice and says, Master, will you help me deal with this anger that is wounding other people because I want to look like you. Okay? Let's look at another one. If the anger one didn't get you, and I think I got about half of you, this one will get the other half. It'll get all the men. Here we go. Uh, Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, let's stop there. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that, that, you, you don't commit adultery. That's a good foundational guideline for a healthy society. I mean, 2,000 years later, we still look down on adultery. And Jesus isn't saying don't have sex, which all the men then said what? Amen. Yeah, he didn't say don't have sex. Some of you actually just woke up because I just said that. Like, what did that preacher boy say? Because apparently I'm in Oklahoma right now. Uh, yeah. No, sex was God's idea. Sex was God's design. Sex was God's invention. It wasn't invented by some guy in the Middle Ages named Sir Charles Fornication. All right? I mean, God created it. And he's saying it's good, but what is he saying here? He, he's saying sex outside the context of marriage, especially in the form of adultery, here's what it does. Destroys people, ruins families, wounds children for generations. Lives are totally thrashed. I have too many stories of friends in this community, in this church, whose lives have been ruined by that. You can't show me, you can't tell me one story of adultery where you go, hey, and everybody is happy now. It doesn't happen like that. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you've heard since the beginning of time, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, here it comes, verse 28. That anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh my gosh. You're kidding. I knew I shouldn't read the Bible. I can't believe it. Really? Lust? You're going to throw lust in there with adultery? <laughs> now watch it. I didn't, I didn't put this in your notes. I should have. I'm sorry. But it will be up on the screen. The next verse, verse 29. Then Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Hello! Who's excited they came to church today? Okay? Now, if we take this, this teaching of Jesus literally, it means that every guy in here would be as blind as a bat. Okay? Well, not everyone. I still have my sight. Uh, no, I'm just... Just kidding. Now, so is Jesus saying, hey, I want you to destroy, I want you to rip out your eyes and destroy your body so you're not going to oogle the hotties at Hooters Family Restaurant, you know, when you go there for the delicious chicken wings, okay? <laughs> is that what he's saying? Or is he drilling down deeper to get to where you and I live, to say, disciple, in order for you to be salt and light, You've got to guard your heart. You've got to do everything you can to guard your heart, even if it means taking drastic measures 
to protect your, your eyes and your heart from the unhealthy situations that are ultimately going to drag you down. You see, he's calling us to a deeper way of living. Which, by the way, there's a little bit of an aside. You know what divorce, divorce lawyers will tell you is the number, the fastest growing reason for divorce in our country? Internet pornography. What is that? That's lust. That's mental adultery. They got sucked in. They got trapped. We go, I'm not, I'm not having physical adultery. And Jesus is saying, oh, but your, your heart is getting wounded. Okay. This, this set of beliefs that we hang under, Christian, it, it's not the type of followership that, that Jesus describes. He calls us to a deeper type of living. And here's why I want you to get this. Here's why I want this community to get this. Jesus didn't come to just enhance your life. Jesus didn't come to just make you a little bit happier and add a little zero to your bank account. Jesus came to transform your life, to revolutionize your life, to change you from the inside out, to make you new, to make you like the, the master, to invite you on this incredible journey to follow him to a richer, deeper, more meaningful way to live life. I think, I may be wrong, but I think if Jesus was here, he'd say, you've heard what it was said before. Since you've been born, you've heard, what, hey, go to church, read your Bible, get in a group, serve, tithe. But I tell you, surrender your heart. Make me your primary concern. Draw close to me. Be an apprentice to who I am and allow me to transform you and mold you from the inside out. Disciples are called to be different. Okay? Flip your notes over. Let's figure out what does that look like. I'm going to give you a couple questions that I believe, if you honestly answer these questions, it will, it will take you to a deeper place than just the word Christian. The first is what I'm calling a, a question of desire. And here's the question. Am I drawn to follow, am I really drawn to follow Jesus, or, here's the would you rather, or would I rather just play the part? It's a question of desire. What do I desire? Do I want to play the part? Do I want to be a Christian actor? And I don't mean like, you know, Kurt Cameron. Uh, but a, a Christian actor, a, a playmaker, a, a going through the motions of pretending, uh, uh, of kind of acting it out, but not really believing it or feeling it or living it. And by the way, I understand the temptation it is to act, to play. I understand the temptation. I mean, people that step on stage, people in ministry, which I've been doing for 30 years, there's a tremendous temptation to act it out and to play the part because everybody expects you to be, to be perfect. So really, there's no safe place for me to fail. Okay? So I understand this temptation to act it out. And so my question to you is this question of desire. Do you really desire to follow Jesus or do you just want to play the part? And before you answer that, before you know, because a lot of people want to give the Christian answer, oh, I really desire, you know, I desire to follow. Let's, let's consider the cost, because there is a cost to following Jesus. Okay? The, following Jesus is not 
owning a title. Christian, following Jesus is actually giving away your title. The title to who you are, your title to your, to your heart, to your agenda. It's saying yes to an apprenticeship that changes you. There is a cost. Let's just consider, just from the Sermon on the Mount, some of the cost to following Jesus. Jesus says, disciple, if you follow me, when somebody slaps you on one cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. <laughs> Have you done that? Try that. Try that. Hey, disciple, when, when somebody sues you for your shirt, here's what I want you to do. What? Give them your coat as well. Hey, disciple, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give. And I want you to give generously. And I want you to look for people in need. And I want you to give to them. And when you give, I don't want you to bring attention to yourself. Oh, oh, oh and your enemies, the people that live on your neighborhood that you don't like, that you wave to and pretend, but you really don't. Here's what I want you to do as a disciple. I want you to love your enemies. And let me take it a step further. I want you to actually pray for those who persecute you. Oh, and disciple, <laughs> there is a cost to this. You know how you go through life and you just want to judge everybody else? And you want to notice the speck in somebody else's eye? Disciple, here's what you need to do. You need to take out the log out of your own eye first. You got a honking log. Okay, honking's actually in the Greek. Uh, you got a honking log. You got to take the honking log out of your eye before you look at the speck in, in the other person. Here's my point. There is a cost to following Jesus. Okay? And it all starts with desire. So the question of desire for you is, am I really drawn to follow Jesus or am I just playing the part? The second question is what I call a question of decision. The question of decision is, am I really willing to forfeit my agenda or would I rather do what's best for me? Am I really willing to forfeit my agenda or would I rather do what's best for me? Now, uh, this is not, a, put a little star by this one if you're taking notes. This is not only a huge question, this is a daily question. Hundreds of times a day, you've got to decide, am I going to forfeit my agenda and walk in the way of Jesus, or am I going to do what is best for me? And here's why it's a tension, and this is not an easy answer. The tension is because, well, I'll just tell you about myself. The tension with this one is, I'm really selfish. I'm really selfish. Now, I know a lot of you are not rhythmically impaired like I am. There's not a lot on my team. But is, would anybody be willing to admit, be brave enough to admit, oh, I'm on your selfish team. So let me see your hands. Yeah, a lot of us in here are really, really selfish. And that's why this makes this question so difficult. And I think what separates Christian from disciple. Yesterday morning... I wake up and I lay in bed. And here's kind of how my rhythm goes. I don't wake up like many of you who are morning people. I am not that person. Some of you are like, good morning, Lord. You know, <laughs> zippity-doo-dah. I mean, you're just like, it's a beautiful day. That's not me. Okay, I don't wake up like that. I don't wake up going, good morning, God. I wake up, good God, morning. You know, that type of snooze, snooze, alarm clock at the cat. That's what I do. So I'm laying in bed yesterday. And I, am, I start my day by just talking to Jesus about my desire. Jesus, I desire to be like you. I desire to live like you. I desire to think like you. 
as an apprentice, I desire to be changed into your likeness. I need your help with that, but I do, that is my desire. I get out of bed. Okay? I walk downstairs into the kitchen to make breakfast. I'm the first one up. And I reach up, and my wife's here. She can tell you this is true. There's a cabinet that is a fake cabinet that the, the exhaust goes in that I hide my supplies in. Because I have my own supplies. Because I, I bought my own frying pan because I don't want anybody messing with my pan. It's the kind that doesn't stick, and I paid for it. And I have a, a certain omelet thing that I do, and I, I just keep it up there so nobody uses it. Okay? And I know you think, Doug, you need therapy. I know, I know, okay? I just, there's some things. I'm quirky in a few ways. That's one of them. I have my a frying pan cabinet. So I go down there to get my frying pan cabinet, and it's not there. Oh, yeah. Now I'm ticked. Then I see it in the sink, and it's got stuff corroded on it, like two days' worth of stuff. And now I'm mad. Now, track with me. Four minutes earlier, I was laying in bed going, Jesus, I desire you. I just, I, did. I want to live like you. I want to think like you. Now I'm mad. And I'm going, which kid did this? Okay, and who am I hitting with the frying pan? Because I, so I'm like, forget it. Okay, forget it. And I just leave to go have breakfast at God's restaurant. So I pull up to Chick-fil-A. Okay, and as I park... As I'm getting my backpack and my notes and Bible and all that stuff, I see another car pull up that has two guys in it, and my mind is, hurry, hurry, get in there before them. Why? Because selfishness is right there. Get in there. Has anybody done that before? Just try, I just don't, I'm feeling alone now. Okay, it's kind of vulnerable here. And it was just two guys. It wasn't like a a senior citizen bus pulled up from Fresno and there's a bunch of people on their walkers and I'm going to be stuck till noon. Two guys. How selfish am I? And then I get in Chick-fil-A in order and there's a dude in my booth. I go there a lot. It's my booth. Okay? It's my booth. I just, it's kind of a regional office. And uh, he, was, he was done. He's reading the paper and I'm kind of bird-dogging him, like looking at him like, can you read my mind? Get out of my booth. Okay, that's where I comfort Bible study. I get, got to preach to this pe- bunch of people this weekend. Get a, he's reading the paper. Who reads the paper anymore? Okay, get an iPad. Go, go, go. Get out. <laughs> Friends, that was before 9 a.m. <laughs> and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So all this to say, I understand this tension. Am I willing to forfeit my agenda for God's agenda? Or would I rather do what's best for me? It's a constant struggle. And here's what I'm learning in this apprenticeship journey. And I've only been on it for 30 years. 35 years. What I'm learning is that when I surrender my agenda to the ways of Jesus... He supports me, and he rewards me. He supports me, and he rewards me. In Matthew 6, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. 
Now, let me break this down how I have it in my notes. I've circled the word seek, and above it, I wrote the word desire. That's what it's desire. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the ways of Jesus. So desire the ways of Jesus. Above all else, what's that? My agenda. Desire the ways of Jesus above Doug's agenda and live righteously. That's the actions of a disciple, an apprentice. And here's the result. He will give you everything you need. Keyword need. Not everything you want. That's exactly right. See, seeking the kingdom of God above all else does not mean you're going to win the lottery. There is, there is reward, but there is also sacrifice. And they go like this. They just go hand in hand. Reward sacrifice. We've already talked about the cost of following Jesus. There is a reward, but they go hand in hand. I'd love to just talk about the reward. Oh, to be a disciple. What a blessing to be a disciple. You know who the first disciples were? These are the same people who were exiled and imprisoned and executed. Okay, and that was on a good day. Okay, there, there is a reward, but there is also a, a sacrifice. So let's get practical. 2013 what does it look like tomorrow morning when I enter the school or the marketplace or my community? What, what does it look like to forfeit my agenda and make Jesus my primary concern? Okay? It would look something like this. I need to ask the question, do I sacrifice my agenda and serve those in need? Or do I, sacrifice, or do I not sacrifice my agenda and, and I, I have other people serve me? Which step am I going to take? Do I sacrifice my agenda and forgive that person like a disciple is called to? Or do I do what I want to do and seek revenge on that person? Do I sacrifice my agenda and become a person of integrity and be honest and actually pay my taxes? Or do I do what I want to do and kind of beat the system and hide a few things so that I can have a little more in my account? See, that's what it looks like every single day with all these decisions. Do, Do I sacrifice my agenda and Jesus beg you to mold me into your likeness and deal with my anger and lust issues? Or do I do what I just feel like doing and express my anger and my lust and have my need immediately met? I find that in my life, I'll just go with my life, most of the pain in my life is me going my way and doing what I want to do. It results in kind of pain and dumps me out at a dead end. But I know I watch a lot of people's lives, a lot of Christians, who go their way, and then they're just mad at God that he didn't bless them. How crazy is, is that? So you've got the question of desire, then you've got the question of decision, which leaves you with the question of devotion. And here's, here's the question I want to leave you with. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Your way, his way. You're building your life on rock or you're building your life on sand? Because if you're building your life on sand, 
that way is going to be easily wiped out. The very last part in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and I wish you could see my Bible because the heading over the the heading over it is true and false disciples. It starts in verse 21, Matthew 7 says, Not everyone who says to me, Jesus is speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not go to church? Were we not enrooted? Did we not give? Did we not serve in a small group? Did we not go on that mission trip? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. When the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. The final would-you-rather question is this. Would you rather be wise or would you rather be foolish? These are not my words. I'm just stealing them from Jesus. For your life, this question of devotion, would you rather be wise or would you rather be foolish? So let me, let me recap and paint the picture of a disciple. A disciple sacrifices their agenda daily. They build their spiritual foundation on rock. They live in the world as salt and light to counteract decay and darkness, and they receive God's blessing, whatever that looks like. Or, Christian, just title only. I go through the motions. I act it out. I pretend. I don't desire it. I do what's best for me daily, whatever I want to do. I build my spiritual foundation on sand, so when troubles and trials come my way, it's quickly wiped out. I look just like everybody else looks in the world, and I live under this illusion that God should bless me. Now, here's the deal. God is gracious. He's so loving. He doesn't force me to make a choice. God is not a puppeteer where we are, you know, forced to do. We have the freedom of choice. That's ultimately love. So would you rather be a disciple, or would you rather play with the title Christian? It's a lot to think about. Let's pray together. As we pray, I just want to ask you if you would be willing to pray something courageous today. And that courageous prayer might sound something as simple as this. Jesus, as of today, I want to be a disciple. I just don't want to wear the badge, Christian, and go through the motions. I want to be a disciple. Jesus, I want to enter your apprenticeship program and learn to be like you. Would you change me from the inside out? I'm tired of acting. I'm tired of playing. I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of living without passion. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you hear our prayers. Thank you that we don't have to be the same people when we leave here as we were when we came. The old has passed away and the new has come. We rest in that now. Pray in the name of Jesus.